We're recording again. Awesome. Which means silence. Quiet, you. He gave me the finger. <laughs> That's awesome. It's tough out there, man. Welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Maggie Moore, and for those of you in our audience who are interested, I will be holding my own Bible signing later on this week. Don't worry, I'll be sure to sign the cover for you. Uh, I'm joined this week by Frank Spring, who will be first in line at my signing, uh, and Ellie Jacobs, who has a day off because he also has been sentenced to 47 months in prison, which is about half as much as he actually deserves. Indeed. And frankly, it is, it's, it's a shame and it's a travesty. Uh, Ellie has plagued us for far too long. <laughs> the scourge of Ellie Jacobs has run rampant in the streets of America for decades now. We finally get the man prosecuted. We finally get the guilty verdict. And what do we get? A paltry 47 months. This is an outrage. But time, the arc of time does bend towards justice. Yeah, yes, it does bend toward and, and And if we're lucky, we may yet imprison Ellie Jacobs for longer. <laughs> this Fingers is not crossed. the end of the story, Jacobs. All right. Uh, it is uh, a pleasure to be here, as always. Uh, for the, yeah, please uh, continue to leave us, uh, send us comments, send us your praise, uh, send us your hate, uh, send us your love if you have some to spare. Uh, we require all of it. It nourishes us. Uh, it actually is, on a, on a slightly more reasonable note, it actually is extremely helpful when you send us feedback. We really appreciate it. Uh, so please continue to do so. Uh, for uh, to communicate praise, to communicate uh, love, hate, contempt, the full panoply of emotion. That is the human condition. And really, we are at Taking Ship. We are about nothing but the human condition. You can follow us on Twitter uh, at, at Taking Ship, and that is ship with a P, as in proletariat. You can follow Maggie at, at uh, M012, Ellie Jacobs at, at Ellie Jacobs, and me at, at Frank Spring. And we've got, a, I think, a short one for you today, a short one, but a good one. And we are going to dive straight into this with the parable of the three white men uh, who saw a star uh, that was the presidency and, and elected to travel toward it. And then one of them turned away. The three white say, men, unless we are being more specific, the parable of three white men could literally be about anything. It's about a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. A group of three or more men in one place is called a podcast. It's called a podcast. That's right. A group of three or more white people of mixed gender is called a brunch. Aha, yes. Mm-hmm. So then what does yeah. this make us here right now? A brunch podcast. Great. Truly the worst. <laughs> God awful. <laughs> so busy wondering, we were so busy trying to figure out if we could do it. We didn't stop to think if we should. So the three white men that I am talking about here, uh, there uh, are Jay Inslee, uh, Sherrod Brown, and John Hickenlooper. Uh, Jay Inslee, a former governor of, of your uh, home state, I believe. Uh, my adopted home state. Your adopted uh, home state, the state yes. of your university. Yes, exactly right. Washington yeah. State, which I didn't know that you need to call it Washington State versus just saying Washington until I moved to the East Coast, because apparently there's like another Washington over here. Who knew? Yeah, there is. And it's, it's, it's an interesting place, uh, but, has many, but has many fewer apples. That is the primary difference between the state of Washington and mm-hmm. the District of Columbia. The there's a lot more apples. good apples in, you know, West Coast Washington and bad apples in East Coast Washington. Really hey that's, <laughs> that's some strong work for a Saturday morning, Mags. I'm not I've against had a it. lot of coffee. Excellent. Good. Good. So, uh, as you know, as is but appropriate uh, for someone from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, all right. So, Jay Inslee, uh, former governor of Washington, declared his candidacy for president on a one on a one issue platform. 
Uh, and that, that issue is climate change. He is going to be the climate change candidate. Uh, Jay Inslee, for those of you who uh, remember our, uh, our tournament-style presidential primary, Democratic presidential primary from uh, December of last year, Jay Inslee was, I don't think he featured, I don't think he was one of the contestants. Uh, and I think part of that was that he seemed like a, an unlikely candidate, a bit of a long shot. Um, so for, so we, we, are, we were caught, I think, a little bit off guard by this. I think a lot of people were actually caught off guard. I actually have a lot of time for this candidacy, not because I think he has a shot at winning. I don't think he does. And I think he probably knows that as well. But because there is room, I think, for a single-issue candidacy on this particular issue. Generally speaking, I'm a little bit wary of single-issue candidacies. Uh, but, but climate change is a, is a special one. It is, it is an absolute existential threat to this country. Uh, the Democratic Party, as we have seen in recent weeks, you know, we are better on it than our than our opponents, but we are uh, we we got some work to do, friends, on this thing. Uh, we all got we, we we are far from on the same page, and and far from I think treating this thing with the urgency that it deserves. Uh, so I'm I'm actually I, I've a lot. So good on you, Jay Inslee. Uh, get up on the stage and tell us about climate change until you're blue in the face. I'm for it. Yeah, I think it. It's interesting to see, um, I figured that if there was going to be any single issue candidate that it would be on climate change, especially with a lot of the momentum that's happening around the Green New Deal and a lot of folks who are really excited by the stuff um, that's being spoken about in the House, that there's, uh, it absolutely makes sense to have a candidate um, kind of hitch their star um, to that issue, if you will. And also being from Washington State, you know, I think gives him a relatively good authority to speak on that issue. I know that there's been two carbon emissions bills that have failed in Washington state, but they weren't at like the first one failed. It was uh, beat by a lot actually, but the one that happened in 2018, it was a lot closer. So the voters in Washington do want to think about this and talk about this. So I think that he's just spent a lot of his time understanding like the constituency of um, folks who are voting exclusively on uh, climate issues. So if there's a candidate to do it, I think it would be him. Yeah, agreed. It's and and it may be that there are better messengers out there on climate change. There probably are, um, but but he got he got there first. <laughs> frankly, that there is yeah. there is such a thing as timing. Um, and there was a there was a good piece, and uh, I think it was in the New Yorker, fairly recently about the uh, much discussed videoed exchange between uh, the school children and uh, Diane Feinstein. Yeah, which is I was going to bring that up actually. Oh my not, god, not my not my not my favorite piece of video. I have to say. So for those of you who presented a, essentially a sort of a pol- essentially a policy or like a request uh, for very strong action on on climate change some pretty radical action and, and Feinstein's reaction was much criticized uh, for among other things, telling them that she's been doing they don't vote for her so she doesn't have to listen to them. Uh, she's been doing this for thirty years. As is inevitable when there's video of someone behaving badly, uh, we got the longer video for people to, pour, you know, the, the unedited version that came out, uh, which people can pour, so people can pour over it at great length and, you know, and use it to, to excuse, to use it to excuse Senator Feinstein. She does come off a little better in the longer version of it. She's a little bit more warm, a little bit funnier. But the piece that I'm referring to in The New Yorker made a really good point here, actually, which is, uh, that attitude, I've been doing this for 30 years and you're a bunch of school children, is completely wrong because this, and it, and it is emblematic of the generational problem at work here, because the kids are the ones whose lives are threatened by climate change. Regardless of what happens, Diane Feinstein will not be with us when the world when the world comes to. 
And as a result, as weird as it seems, there is a, a generational respect that is due younger people, not older people on this issue. Because as Diane Feinstein likes to say, she's been doing this for 30 years. And during that 30 years, climate change went from being a problem to being an existential threat to the existence of humanity. And if the proposals that we're pushing, that the children are pushing, or that that uh, the Green New Deal is pushing, or so forth, seem radical, it is because they're. It's not because they're negotiating. They're trying to negotiate with a reasonable person. The, what we are trying to do here is effectively negotiate with physics. Climate change is not something you can negotiate with, and the longer it takes us to do anything about it, the more radical our response is going to be. This is why my head exploded. Uh, when a number of, certainly when a number of, obviously Republicans, as you would expect, but a number of centrist Democrats looked at the Green New Deal and said, oh, well, this is really, this is pretty radical stuff. Well, shit, yeah, it's going to be expensive. Doing anything about climate change is going to be expensive. All those decades where we didn't do shit about it, that's when we save the money and now we have to pay for it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And like at this point, you don't read there. The only solution is to do something radical, which I feel is the, the framework um, that ASC is really approaching this with. Um, I mean, and just, you know, back a little bit to, to the video that you were talking about, you know, I'm someone who uh, works in an organization that um, believes uh, in the idea that young people um, have power and have agency and have ideas um, that are, that deserve dignity and respect and not listening to young people actually just sort of reveals yourself um, in a, in a bad light. And it was embarrassing to watch her do that. It is so much easier to uh, listen, first of all, but to dismiss young people because they are young for that reason alone, whether, you know, it's a candidate like AOC or if it's a a middle schooler um, is a, is a mistake. Um, And I think that almost always at the vanguard of change are young people, whether that's folks, you know, um, in uh, SDS in the sixties in college, uh, but people that are uh, often protesting um, are, are of a younger generation. So uh, just dismissing young people like that out of hand just really makes my blood boil. Uh, Cause it yeah. is, you know, something I do every day. Um, not dismissing young people, but advocate. Uh, <laughs> no, it's with, something, I do, it's something I do every day. I mean, get off my lawn. lawn. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think the, there's a particular there's there's issues that young people can speak to um, more poignantly than others: gun violence, climate change, immigration. Um, so dismissing young people out of hand and not actually embracing them as the powerful messengers that they actually are is a huge mistake and a complete unforced error. So, Diane Feinstein, get a grip. Yeah, get it together. Diane Feinstein, come on the podcast and fight mags. Yeah, that would be so fun. Actually. Yeah, that, would, that would actually be awesome as hell. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yeah. if Jay Inslee, though, can sort of, you know, team up with young people, whether, you know, it's high schoolers um, or AOC, I think we could see a real narrative shift in how all the other candidates are talking about climate change or what actually gets, um, what gets put into people's platforms or how the Democratic Party is responding to it, which I think is his dream. Um, and it's a good dream to have, so go for it. Yeah, I hope so. And I, that's, and you make a really good point. I've, you know, a lot, the value of this thing is not in whether or not he has done it. I think there is value in doing it. The value, like ultimately the mechanics of it, like, is he just going to be on stage telling us about climate change or is he going to try and build some kind of broader movement around it? Uh, so yeah. that remains to be seen. Uh, so turning now, so we, 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 pro- we promised you three, we promised you three white <laughs> men, which I know is but something that all of us have just been craving. We want some more, where are the white dudes? Where's the mayonnaise? We, we cry. Uh, and we have some more mayonnaise for you. I'm happy to say. Uh, so, uh, turning to someone who decided not to run, Sherrod Brown, uh, senator from Ohio, um, thought of as being a fairly credible candidate. He appeared in our list, I believe, in our mm-hmm. in our tournament, I believe. Uh, you know, he's there. 
is one of the few Ohio now being, I mean, at least for the past couple of cycles, very much a red state is one of the few winners in it. Now, one, a candidate who has been, I think, perceived often correctly as being uh, closer to labor than a lot of Democrats. The idea was there was a good there was a good candidacy here, um, and he took a uh, he took a pass on it to stay in the Senate in Ohio. Um, and actually, while I'm handing out plaudits, uh, thanks. That's awesome. Good for you. <laughs> stay in Ohio. You know, stay in Ohio. Stay in the Senate and keep doing some good work. Like that's this is this is a very good call. Like I think prop. I think the calculus behind this was almost certainly a political one. Looking at the nature and type of uh, of you know of white dudes, the mayonnaise bracket from our tournament. Uh, there's just it, it would have been a very very difficult run for him. It is pretty clear that the Democratic Party is looking with increased skepticism on older white dudes. Uh, not we clearly are are not are we clearly are not done with them. Um, but we are. It is it is no longer a, you know that 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 bracket is turns terms. So I think part of it is based on a political calculus, just looking at this and thinking it's going to be hard for me to raise enough money and to, and to get a path to victory on this thing. Uh, but it led him to a really good conclusion. And I, you know, I, you know, thanks, man. Mazel. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I feel like I didn't really understand who his constituency was necessarily. Also, not that many people know who he is. Um, and at this point, like, um, I think doing that sort of money calculus of like, where is my money actually going to come from, then sort of leads you to a good conclusion of like, you don't necessarily have to be as public as, you know, I don't know where my money is going to come from. But you can also say, because I wanted to run for president, the, the type of change and the type of governing I wanted to do as a president, I can still do in Ohio. I would much rather, you know, st- keep my seat as opposed to giving it up potentially uh, and opening us up to an even um, smaller margin uh, or wider margin, I guess. That's a better way to put it um, in the Senate because I don't really want to give up a Democratic seat uh, in the Senate right now. And there's, there's already a lot of that potentially happening. So it's like, why don't we have Mr. White Guy stay in Ohio? Thank you very much. Um, and then endorse a different candidate to help us carry Ohio. So great. Thank you. Again, I think that was a really good point. Thank you. Yeah. Some remarkably clear thinking happening within the Democratic Party these days. And frankly, I, I don't twist. know what to make of it. It's making me, I know exactly. That for a, what a twist. Exactly. What a twist. What a twist. Uh, but fortunately, I, I, you will be relieved to know that not everyone is, has, you know, is, uh, is engaging in what might be uh, referred to as reality-based thinking. Uh, I am pleased to announce that uh, that the former governor of, uh, of or the governor actually of, yeah, of, uh, of Colorado, the former governor of Colorado, uh, Jared Polis is the current governor, the former governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, uh, is running for president for reasons that I am sure are clear to him. Uh, and... <laughs> Actually, no, I'm not sure they're clear to him. They certainly are not clear to me. He's one of these guys that looks that looks great on paper, right? A successful entrepreneur. He's a brewer, which is a vocation that's very dear to my heart. Uh, terrific mayor of Denver. I mean, I actually think there's like his record as mayor of Denver is, is unequivocally pretty great. Uh, somewhat mixed eight years as governor of, of Colorado. It's not clear to me if he is as centrist as he... Um, as he as he as he appeared to be as governor, or if he was already thinking someday I may have higher aspirations, and in order to do it, I'm going to run as a centrist. But um, it, 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 he was that state, Colorado has been moving from red. It used to be a red state, mm-hmm. moving from red to a very bluish purple, uh, very bluish purple. 
uh, you might even call it a purplish blue. And and he basically governed it like it was still like he tried. He appeared to be governing it like it was still a red state. Like his, his environmental record wasn't great. Uh, he opposed a lot of the uh, he opposed a, he opposed a lot of the social programs that were coming up through the legislature, uh, for which he is now taking credit. Right in his announcement video, he lists all the great things that happened in Colorado when he was governor. Most of which he actually opposed and were forced on him by the legislature. So uh, you know, and also, and this is the this is the last point, but. At his announcement on Thursday, uh, he stood in front of a huge American flag, which he had not ironed. And as a result, you just got the image of the candidate standing in front of this, like, incredibly creased, incredibly, like, just folded up looking, bla- looking American flag. It's a, it, it honestly is distracting, and it looks bad, and you got to get this stuff right, my man. you got to get this stuff right. This is the basics, my dude. Especially if you're going to be on that big of a national stage, um, and it kind of just shows that you're trying to, like, pretend to be someone who respects a flag, when clearly you just shoved it into a laundry bag like a yeah. hobo and just yeah. exactly. just that's it. exactly right like, no. like an American like some sort of twisted version of Santa Claus the most patriotic Santa just like carries American flags around exactly yeah. Yeah, my guy like really matter get the details right tell. get the details right my man also get yeah. it also you're wrong. also you're you're off on fracking my dude um, so mean, yeah, yeah so Hickenlooper to me. Um, gives me this, he's one of those people that I feel like no one has ever told him that he's not interesting, that he's just never gotten that like critical feedback or never really had to justify why he's sitting at the head of the table, you know? So he's just sort of like, well, president, duh, kind of like, um, uh, kind of like when I don't know if people's our listeners or yours, uh, knowledge of West Wing is as detailed as mine is. Um, but there is an episode centered around the fact that the West Wing gang doesn't necessarily have an answer for why do you want to be president yet? But the reason why it comes up is because a candidate who's, um, thinking about running against the president bungles the answer. He basically says that he wants to be basically president because of all of the wonderful people. And it's the people that make this such a wonderful country. And, and basically, and it's a really bad answer. And I just feel like that whole bungling of it to me feels like what Hickenlooper's campaign is going to be that no, he's, he's road tested mm. nothing. He has no real connection to like why he would want to do this, which Frank, I know is something that you are very passionate about. Um, so I'm excited to watch this kind of fall apart. Honestly, I love a good reality TV show. So that's what this feels like to me. That's a, that, that's a, that is a really, really strong point. And yeah, it does sort of feel like, uh, well, I can't be governor of, of Colorado anymore. And it's a crowded, it's going to be a crowded field to run against Cory Gardner for Senate. So I thought I'd run for president of the fucking United States. Like my man, you got to do better than that, my dude. Yeah. Uh, like yeah. a natural, like this feels like the natural next step is never the answer to why you should be running for president. And that's, the, that looks like what's happening. It's the worst possible answer because it suggests that your theory of politics is that what's wrong with the world is that there isn't enough you in it. Oh, that is a bad, right. And that is a bad look. So here, the, here ends the parable of the three white men. You know, two, you know, two, two goodies and then a guy that we're not so crazy about. Yeah. All right, let's, let's talk about another group of people who are engaging in some, unlikely, some unusual thinking. This is primarily for, our, uh, for American audience uh, who may not be aware of the fact that there were that, – and we're coming a little late to this. This is from late February – uh, that there is a new parliament. There's a new political party in Britain. The Independent Parliamentary Group is, I think, now eight Labour Party members who broke off from the Labour Party uh, over various things. Some of them were unhappy with Jeremy Corbyn's handling of Brexit. Some of them were unha- unhappy with his uh, handling of the anti-Semitism 
uh, scandal, which has essentially engulfed the entire Labour Party, which has been going on for more than a year now. Uh, some of them, I think, are unhappy with which are just unhappy with Jeremy Corbyn, um, and they all. You know, so these eight members, uh, including some people who were thought of thought at one point as being leading lights of the party, Chuka Muno was a. It's probably the most famous of the bunch. He was at one time uh, considered a you know potential favorite to lead the British Labour Party. Uh, was was called the uh, British Obama for you know, you know which and I and I bring this up because whenever someone is called the whatever Obama, you I mean you know don't believe the hype. Uh, so Joko Muna is kind of the, is, I guess, the de facto leader of it. Maybe Luciana Berger, who uh, has a, a fairly substantial um, a following or presence in, in British politics, is young. Uh, she and has gotten in a huge amount of uh, has, has has I say she has gotten into a huge amount of trouble as if this were something she did to herself. She has faced an enormous amount of friction and uh, and. and and frankly abuse, uh, partly because she is perceived as being more centrist than maybe more centrist than her constituency, certainly more centrist than Corbyn's Labour Party. The fact that she is Jewish, uh, I think, has a very significant role to play in the amount of trouble that she's that she's faced in the last couple of years. So those two and various others have broken off. They form their own. They form their own party. Three pro-EU Tories have also jumped ship. So there's now an 11 person independent parliamentary group. I don't blame any of those people for leaving parties that don't reflect their politics or their values. But I do, but, but looking at this, looking at the way they talk about themselves, about how they are organizing themselves, it's not clear. Like, what's your game, friends? Like, what do you think is going to, what do you think is going to happen here? How does this story end? Because the way they talk about themselves is, you know, we are politicians whose own, like, their talking points about why they exist is, we are politicians bound together by our desire for practical common sense solutions. I'm like, my guys, have you ever, is there any history to suggest that people want practical common sense solutions? There is, I mean, there is no period in human history in which we have ever elected people who are promising that kind of thing. And certainly not now. What about the politics of today says to you, the people crave white papers, it's insane. It is the most like it, it's it is the the most remarkably bloodless uh, sort of uh, apolitical centrist centrism I think I've ever seen. It might be the first political party founded purely on the basis of alt centrism. Oh, that's brutal, and that is not a like award that you want. No, no, you don't want to be the alt centrist party. Uh, I, again, I wouldn't swear that that's what's happening here, but it does sort of. Boy, this boy, this thing stinks of alt centrism. Uh, you know, we are, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're Labour and Tories, and we can come together to pursue, you know, to we can come together to civilly debate and to, you know, to to share ideas and to come up with common sense centrist solutions. I'm like this. This sounds like something that David Brooks dreamed up. You know, wine drunk at two a.m. Honestly, I mean, so I don't follow the UK politics as closely as you do. I mean, I don't think that's a good choice. Those are good life choices, but, um, something that I have always respected when I, you know, hear about what's going on, uh, in UK politics is just how much petty drama there is. This is, and I love it. I mean, you're talking to a woman who watches Bravo exclusively. I live for this shit. So I feel like I should maybe follow it more closely and then just sort of like view it in a lens of like, this is like Vanderpump Rules. And these people are no longer friends with these people. And they're going to be making their own alliance over here so they can attack this person. Like this is, this, this is I think, maybe what my new pastime will be. I think I honestly I think that, that that there is rarely now that you have said that I can't think of a better union 
of observer and subject than Maggie Moore and 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 particularly British Labour Party politics. Like it is, it, and it's a, it is honestly, God, I can't believe I'm saying this to so to, I can't believe I'm saying this to someone who isn't a blood enemy. It's a real shame you missed the later years of New Labour because <laughs> that was bonkers. I mean, the, the only meaningful political identities within the British Labour Party in, say, about 2010 was, who are your enemies? And spoiler alert, none of them were Tories. It That's was all crazy. just like, it was just like the place just balkanized beyond all recognition. It was insane. I turned up to do some work there and I was like, what? Why do you all hate hate each other so much? And I'm a Democrat. Like I like I I know from disorganization and like you know visceral internecine warfare. But damn, I mean the yeah. Brits are really really good at that shit. Having blood enemies um, with people mm-hmm. uh, in political alliances, like they have had hundreds of years to practice at it. So I don't know. Maybe it's my time to dial in. I think it is. I think it, I think that's exactly. And the thing is, you just ultimately at some level, you just can't teach that. You know, it just it you know it comes naturally or doesn't come at all. And it really it comes you know it comes naturally to them. And you know, and it's you know at least we can get some some entertainment out of it. Uh, so yes. Uh, so in con- so in conclusion, uh, Diane Feinstein, come on the podcast and fight Mags. Uh, Hick and Looper, come on the podcast and fight me. Um, independent parliamentary group, come on the podcast and fight Ellie. I guess if they ever let him out of jail. Yeah, or he could just fight Manafort in jail. You know. Yeah, yeah. I'm honestly, sure the important thing is that we are the important thing. The thing is, you got to fight someone. That's true. That's true. Well, um, thank you for walking us through my new favorite reality television show, which is UK politics. Um, also, if our listeners are interested, um, last week tonight did a relatively good um, update. I believe in like mid February, maybe like the 18th or 19th or so, about what's going on with Brexit. So, if you are sort of like WTF mate about what's going on on that side of the pond. I highly recommend going to check that out um, because it also taught me that um, they are not allowed to show footage from Parliament on TV in comedy shows. I had no idea. It's such a specific law, but they can't do it. Um, so I felt grateful for learning that from John Oliver. But Indeed. Know. Yeah. Go to John Oliver, learn about Brexit from him. Honestly, you could do worse. Right. So, you know, after you listen to the show, please go ahead and check that out on YouTube. Um, And, you know, once you're done with that, please um, tweet at us, um, like, subscribe, all of those wonderful things. Uh, Again, we do very much appreciate your comments, both positive and negative. Um, And we will be sure to write them down in letters and send them to Ellie's jailhouse mailbox Um, so that he too can continue to live vicariously through the podcast that now Frank and I have taken over. Um, Please be sure to follow us at at taking ship and that ship with a P as in parliament. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can follow me at Maggie M zero one two. You can follow Frank at at Frank spring and you can follow Ellie while he tweets from jail at at Ellie Jacobs. And with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? So friends, we head now actually to the beach, just head to your nearest beach. Uh, for a simple reason, uh, and that and that is, there, there have been a series of, uh, of articles recently about rising ocean temperatures and the uh, the, the, the deleterious effect that has on marine life. Uh, it is it is obviously a threat to claim many species. And I have to say, friends, staunch advocate and zealot in the war on the ocean that I am, the war on the sea, uh, that boiling these creatures is not how we are going to win this thing. That is victory without honor. And if, if we're on if we're about anything on taking ship, it's about victory with honor. I think our record shows that. So, friends, uh, take ship downriver to your nearest beach and do this thing the proper way, which is, you know, waist deep in the surf, stripped to the waist, fist fighting a seal. Jump into the depths and attempt to choke out a shark. Get on a boat and shout a whale into submission. 
Through these direct, uh, through these direct combat examples, will we achieve the victory that we deserve, the kind of lasting victory that will show our superiority, both technologically and morally, to the vile creatures of the deep. We can't boil them. We must fist fight them. That is the only solution. Ocean, come on the podcast and fight me. Friends, we take ship now to the beach to fist fight a seal. Here, here. 